Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Hover.com. When you have a great idea for your blog, store, or startup, you need to give it a great domain name. Find the perfect one at Hover.com slash CanadaLand and get 10% off your first purchase. Nahid Mustafa, freelance writer and broadcaster and producer, welcome to Canada Land Shortcuts. Thanks for having me. Today we are going to talk about the Toronto Star's crusade on behalf of Muslim girls and women. We are going to talk about the cross-partisan campaign to defund CBC Comedy, something that will finally bring us together as a country. <laughs> Very glad to have you here. Thanks. Not awkward at all. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Patrick Richard, Stephanie Ryan, Dadiv Harder, Bryn Ossington, Lewis Bennett, Srinivas Murthy, Michael, and Sachin Hingu. Sachin, why did you decide to be awesome? Because uh, Canada Land is an important set of checks and balances on Canadian journalism and journalists, I think. And this episode is brought to you by Hover.com. When you have a great idea for a new website, for a new project, if you need to get a portfolio set up, you need to get a great domain name for your new website. And the place to do that is Hover.com. It is ridiculously easy to find the perfect domain name. They'll tell you what is taken. They'll tell you what is available. They have dozens and dozens of domain suffixes. But domain names are not just for websites. You can also use them to create a more on-brand and professional email address. As you know, I am jesse at canadalandshow.com. I feel very professional about that. 
it makes me feel good about myself every day. It works with whatever email programs you're already using. If you're on Gmail, you can still use your Hover assigned email address. And if you need a hand, Hover's awesome support team is there to help you. Give them a call and an actual person will pick up the phone and answer whatever questions you have. There are no annoying phone trees transferring you from one department to the other. Go to Hover.com slash CanadaLand. You'll get 10% off of your first purchase. Again, that is Hover.com slash CanadaLand. Hover, domain names for your ideas. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Nahid, mm -hmm. the Toronto Star has been on what we, we, we call it a crusade. It's actually called when a newspaper decides that they're going to go on a crusade on a topic. And they have been on a crusade on the topic of female genital mutilation. You know, um, while I was reading the that um, that last piece that you sent to me, it occurred to me that way back a million years ago in 1994, I had freelanced a piece about FGM in Toronto among immigrant communities to the Globe and Mail. So since 1994 to 2017, it's literally the same story that we've been writing. I don't know what, you know, what public health has been saying about this. I don't know, you know, what those internal conversations around policy are. But the, but the media story has been this story for the last 23 years. And it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And so I have to sort of stand back and think, hmm, how much of a story is there or how much of this is a, is a, a sort of a, a concern about a story that might be there? 
I've wondered the same thing about this whenever it's popped up in a Canadian context. And mm -hmm. I think that this became hyper-politicized during the last election yep. when the idea of having a hotline where you would report barbaric cultural practices. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was not so subtly referencing this, that if it suggested that there, that FGM was such a problem in Canada that we needed a hotline where you could snitch on a neighbor who was brutalizing their daughter mm -hmm. for this. And that brought to mind for me, and I think we talked about on the show at the time, like, well, how big an issue is this in Canada? And we were unable to find a record of anyone actually being convicted. And it is a crime in the criminal code. Yeah, there hasn't been a conviction ever. And I, what, what's interesting is there are sort of these percolating issues and obsessions and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not casting aspersions on people who are concerned about this. I mean, obviously, yes, one would have to be concerned about a problem like this. You know, there's always the possibility I sort of operate along the principle of anyone is capable of anything, right? And so it's sort of the where there's smoke, there's fire. And we had this story come out of Detroit, that physician who'd done a version of FGM on a, like 100 girls from all over the States. Yeah. And so I can understand that these sort of sort of things flare up. But I mean, it, this is an issue that's almost completely devoid of any data. There's no statistics. There's no concrete evidence of any kind other than people's speculation, anecdotal evidence. And even the anecdotal evidence, what is it? You know, is it just people saying, I heard this thing? It's kind of like the polygamy issue in, mm -hmm. in uh, you know, every time there's an effort to kind of ferret out the data on polygamy, what you'll get is people telling you stories. And then when you go to the people that are telling the stories and you ask them, which I have, can you at least, if you can't put me in touch with such a family, and, and I do know personally, yes, there are several families, but is this a hotbed of polygamy? No, I haven't seen it. And when you go to the people that say that it is and you ask them, what is your evidence? They also don't have any evidence outside of this is what I've heard. And so I kind of feel like maybe the FGM issue is is something like that. You know, if you if you read the Toronto Star piece and you go through all of those emails that they reference, it's all speculative. Yeah. And I'm always thinking, is it is it thousands? Is it hundreds? Is it the same five girls that keep getting talked about over and over and over again? Like, who is this? And so... A story like that, absent data and absent evidence, I don't really know where that's coming from. Well, let's talk about the story and actually the stories because they've run a number of them themselves. Because it, when I first saw this and how big the star was going with this, you know, they, they slapped there, you know, it's, it's an investigation and story after story that the star, like, I, I felt like, oh, maybe we finally have some data mm -hmm. because this has been uh, uh, talked about for so long without all of that heat, not much light. Mm -hmm. What are the facts of this? How big a problem is this here? The headline felt like a, a definitive declaration. Canadian girls are being taken abroad to undergo female genital mutilation documents reveal. And underneath that, there was this uh, rather disturbing photo of uh, the hands of a black mm -hmm. person holding like a dull razor. Mm -hmm. And the, the lead reads, thousands of Canadian girls are at risk of female genital mutilation, government officials believe. And some are being taken overseas to have the dangerous procedure done, an illegal act known as vacation cutting. So this feels like we've got to figure this out. It's happening. Mm -hmm. When you get into it further, this idea that government officials, plural, believe that thousands of girls are at risk, it all ties back to this one quote that they were able to get through government documentation. I think they, they A-tipped, they got access to information requests where they got the correspondence of government officials and 
the smoking gun such as it is seems to be this one quote from Ulaine Kucherik uh, of the federal government's Vulnerable Children's Unit. So here is an email she wrote in 2015 to a Canadian consular official in Nairobi, Kenya. Here's what she wrote. Based on the limited information available, it's possible that a few thousand Canadian girls are at risk, some of whom will be taken overseas for the procedure. That's it. Yeah. And anything is possible. And, and and as I said, that is this story or these series of stories are not qualitatively different than what I wrote as a freelancer in my first year of journalism as a job back in 1994. There's no big reveal. Here. There's no big reveal. I mean, when I read this, I was like, oh, you know, part of it initially it was scanning, scanning for numbers, didn't come across any numbers, read it a couple times in case I was missing something. And there's no big reveal. There's it's speculative. You know, and, and one of the things that kind of comes to mind if you remember back when that whole that whole big stink about uh, women in niqabs going to vote and how would they be identified came up as an election yeah. issue. A lot of times I think this is sort of, frankly, liberal hand-wringing. It's preemptive liberal hand-wringing, small l liberal hand-wringing. You know, how are we going to help these at-risk girls? How are we going to help these these women use sort of their democratic rights to vote? And And meanwhile, what it ends up doing is fanning the flames of all kinds of hate. And is it really helpful? I mean, if, you know, if this gets taken up as another one of those ways to bash Muslims, let's say there are girls out there who are at risk, then you end up throwing, you know, and this happens all the time, people from minority communities that are marginalized will end up sort of taking on a defensive posture while we got to protect our own. In the, in the course of protecting our own, you end up masking a lot of problems because you don't want to sort of air the dirty laundry kind of thing. You brought up a lot of the key stuff there. And a lot of it played out in the subsequent star coverage. There was another story that they, they followed up with, which was the story of a young woman who had been mutilated before she came to Canada mm-hmm. as a small girl. And then after they ran that story, she was raising money through a GoFundMe to go have reconstructive surgery abroad. So that the, the final headline on that was, Star Readers Help Female Genital Mutilation Survivor Reach mm-hmm. Fundraising Goals. So we've, we've helped her. Mm-hmm. And she will go to California for reconstructive surgery. Then we get an editorial board piece. Addressing female genital mutilation will need proper funding and attention. So it's almost like we have this kind of neat bow of like, this is a difficult conversation to have. I think that the star's managing editor actually said that, like we're talking about that thing that nobody wants us to talk mm-hmm. about. And, you know, this investigation by Jamie Poisson and, and, and Michelle Henry, we have these these reporters kind of going into a different culture. And at the end of it, we've addressed this and here's a person who we've helped. Right. And the idea, you know, it's sort of the star is a liberal newspaper and their readership helped this person. But then you actually follow it through online and you see how the stories are actually being interpreted. And the first story was tweeted by Richard Dawkins and was retweeted thousands of times. And he wrote, commenting on the headline that these thousands of girls are at risk in Canada. Oh, but you have to respect their culture, scare quotes. Anyway, didn't you know it's all a response to Western imperialism? And there are dozens upon dozens of tweets that are assailing and criticizing Muslim culture as this is this is here we have it. It's proof of this Mm -hmm. barbaric practice. Well, you know, I mean, part of that is a difficult balance, right? I mean, we don't also as journalists want to not cover stories because we're afraid of how they'll get taken up by people determined to take them up in a particular way. I mean, we have to do our jobs. But I, I think that a lot of times there is this sense that we need to. I mean, one of the things that 
comes up in in the emails that that are atipped, I guess, you know, was this constant sense that Canada is behind on this. Canada is behind. Canada isn't keeping up with other countries where there has been hard evidence that this has been a problem. Been a problem and being practiced within the country. Exactly. As it has in Australia and I think in the UK UK, and in America. And obviously now in the States. And so it's almost as though we have to keep up, but... There's no evidence that any of this is happening in this country. And so what are we supposed to do about it? And yet the evidence that's presented is so evocative. There was that picture of the razor blade. There's mm. also here we see these like rusty implements in a hand. And and you see this. And I mean, anybody would just be shocked mm-hmm. to think that that would be applied to somebody's genital area, that mm-hmm. somebody would do that to their own child. But you read about it. The first one was a Getty image. Right. They took a stock image. It has nothing to do as far as we know, with anything that happened in Canada or to Canadians. And this image of these rusty tools, this was part of a report that Canadian Border Service Agency officials included in a, in a report. They, they got this from some other sources. The images are so evocative and disturbing. Mm-hmm. What do you make of them, like the use of this kind of imagery? You know, I think it's. I think it comes down to, I always say, like a, a reporter, an editor, a managing editor, an assignment. Th- these are all people that are confronting the issue as an individual as well. And if you are not in a place where you understand what the impacts of these kinds of stories are, then you're going to assign them just as as any other story without really understanding the implication of them. I don't think there's anything necessarily nefarious about those those picture choices. I think that it's probably negligence. It's probably somebody who doesn't understand what the implication of showing this kind of thing is. It's not somebody taking a critical eye to how they're illustrating the story that they're using. It's, it's people. It's like people, for example, who will use audio of a foreign language to illustrate something that they're working on from the Middle East, not yeah. knowing what what the language is. Is it even Arabic? What are they even saying? I just think that it's a poor choice. But part of the issue here is I think that there is a sense in the media that we're going to do some saving here. You know, we're going to save these people from themselves. Yeah. And so how are we going to tell that story about how we're going to help people save, you know, we're going to help save people from themselves and from their practices, but we're going to do it in a good liberal way. And ultimately it ends up being almost as destructive. And so that's my concern with a lot of, with a lot of these kind of stories that if you're not working with a lot of evidence and you're not working with any data and you don't have anything concrete, then what was the conversation that happened when the story got pitched or when the series got pitched and someone said, we're going to do this as an investigative piece. And that first report came back and said, well, you know, there isn't any hard evidence that any of this is actually happening in this country because every reporter has that conversation with their editor. I haven't talked to anybody who's been able to say to me, yes, this is a thing. Mm-hmm. And then what? So what does the what's the decision there? Is the decision then, well, we're going to do it anyway? Well, they did. And, yeah. and I mean... You talked about the implications and the impact. I mean, I just think that like when you have the biggest newspaper in Canada Mm -hmm. running story after story where you put the words genital mutilation next to photographs of rusty razor blades and it's Muslim, Muslim, Muslim. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, to the casual reader, what's the numbers? Thousands. Yeah. You are focusing an incredible amount of public attention on the vaginas of Muslim women. I mean, I I don't know any, any other way to put it. You are conjuring up images and concern and outrage about what is supposedly being done mm-hmm. to a specific body part. I wonder what the impact, I mean, I, I keep thinking about this. I feel the same. I'm pretty far away from this topic. And yet 
as you read for the, well, what actually is happening here? And then, the, you know, the, the devil in the details, or at least the, the stuff that actually kind of deflates the story is in the details. One woman who's quoted, uh, one of the anonymous sources who had this done in her country of origin, said, well, these days, actually, it's rare for it to be done in the extreme version of FGM. These days, it's more of a nick or mm-hmm. a pinprick. Mm-hmm. And that made me wonder, like, is all of this just overblown and exaggerated? And I think about like the fact that I am a circumcised Jewish man mm-hmm. and that I had my son circumcised. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a huge raging debate about that. Oh, like, yeah. You know, like I did hand my newborn son, my wife and I did this. We, we handed over to a, a holy man with a razor blade, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of people would find that barbaric and they would have a lot of things to say about our choice. And my, my response to that is, my son's penis is none of your business. Mm-hmm. My penis is none of your business. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of public attention. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder what the impact of directing that much attention towards something that is very private. You know, I'm conflicted about that. I mean, one of the things that's come up in the course of those of those stories was now, for example, lumping India and Pakistan into that whole sort of arc of FGM, right? FGM, one very mild version of it exists within a very small sect of Muslims in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. I assume in India as well, because there's a continuum there. It isn't widely done. It isn't prevalent. It isn't well known. And so now you're conflating a very specific practice in a tiny minority, and you're calling it prevalent. And so now suddenly you're looping in a whole other segment of ethnicities into this practice where most of the people don't even know about it. And, you know, I I have the same conflict, though, because we're Muslim. We had our son circumcised as well. And we kind of did it because we we knew that we were going to do it. It wasn't even a discussion for me and my husband. Mm -hmm. And yet I also know that there is a tremendous amount of outrage around male circumcision. The female part of it, you know, I've had Muslim people say to me, you know, in rural areas when I've been abroad reporting and that kind of thing, that this is something that that they've heard of and that they they used to do in their village or whatever, you know, and I think it's wrong. I mean, you know, but do I now sound like the same kind of people that say, well, male circumcision, like, what is my what is my rationale? Am I being irrational in defending one and opposing the other? I don't know. I mean, I I, I feel like I mean, for me, it's an issue of harm, right? Like, are we yeah. harming? I don't think my son has been harmed. Some would argue otherwise, but I but I feel like, well, you could, you could still feel sexual pleasure and function. And, yeah. But I mean, you know, we're making these arbitrary, like I'm sure somebody would just say that we're both hypocrites yeah, for this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I do feel there is a line where we, we would want the state to step in and, and help a child. Absolutely. But not my family. But you yeah, because we're, we're okay. fine. We're yeah. fine. But yeah, but I mean, like if we're if what we're going to do is focus on the reporting, I just think that it's I just think that the reporting is subpar. Like I just think for the time and effort and the resources. And I should also be clear that I haven't read everything that they've written on this. I've read some of the things that they've written on this. I just think if you're going to run with a story at that level, like, let's get something, you know, give me something I can use, right? Do you think that they should have involved a Muslim reporter? Um, No, but I think they should have involved a lot more voices from communities that where this is a prevalent practice or has been a prevalent practice outside of the Canadian context. I didn't see a lot of that. And I think that, you know, if you talk to young Somali girls in Toronto today, is FGM one of their overriding concerns? I mean, is it bigger for them than, say, Islamophobia or anti-Black racism or or any of those other things? Is it a bigger issue than access to resources mm-hmm. and, and you know, and all of the, the issues that come with generational trauma and, and, and poverty and that sort of thing? Is, you know, what are, what are the concerns for these young girls? This is why I look askance at those who 
are so outraged on their behalf. Yeah. Are those same people... Like, why don't you help them? Like, why don't you help them with their real stuff, like the day-to-day stuff? And... And maybe, you know, maybe I'm totally ignorant as well. Like maybe if if I sat among a group of young women who are from, you know, these particular backgrounds and they will say, yes, it's a conversation that happens almost daily. Like maybe they will say that. I don't know. But I've literally never heard this. I've never heard that for young girls growing up in Toronto, born and raised here, that FGM is the thing that they're worried about. I've just I've never heard that. And I'm not outside the Muslim community. Nahid, this is the time on Canada Land Shortcuts where we take a moment to duly note a few things that need to be duly noted. I would like to duly note a fellow by the name of Kevin Johnson, you know, who's sort of a, a sort of an Islamophobe in chief out in Mississauga, mm-hmm. really kind of fanning the flames of, of anti-Muslim protest. And I don't like the term, well, I'll probably get in trouble for it, but I don't like the term Islamophobia. I think that it's problematic, but I think we should just call it what it is. It's anti-Muslim rhetoric. Whatever happened to bigot? Um, bigot, you know, can we say asshole? I mean, yeah. you know, I, you know, this is this is racism, plain and simple. And yes, there's a component of racism in anti-Muslim bias because Sikhs get, you know, pulled into that. Christian Arabs get pulled into that. But in any case, he has been arrested and charged with, well, he was arrested and he's been charged with a hate crime for the really vicious things he's been saying about Muslims out in, in the West End. And what I thought was a little bit hilarious about it is that he has cited... M103 mm-hmm. as the reason that he's been arrested for hate crime. You know, I mean, you don't get charged with a hate crime for something that's emotion, right? I mean, this is this is sort of basic Canadian procedures, policy and procedures 101. And Buddy seems to be invoking M103 as a as a defense of that. So. Which to those who, who protested so passionately against M103 thought that it would be a limitation on free speech. Yeah. It was never going to. Like Sharia is coming to your town. Yeah. I'll make another point about Kevin Johnston's arrest under the hate crime laws. I mean, we talk about the hate crime laws a lot, and I, I'm always oscillating between being pretty bullish on free speech and what, what the limits of that are. And the idea, like, it's another one where the conversation of the implications of, of limitation of freedom kind of eclipses the reality. He was not arrested for saying, I hate Muslims. Right. Right. You can kind of say that. Yeah. You can kind of legally say that. Yeah. Oh, and people love to say it. Yeah. (laughs) He was arrested because he put a bounty on anybody who would bring him footage of a Muslim kid in a public school praying at school. Yeah. So where the hate speech laws in Canada that everyone is so concerned about actually result in criminal charges and convictions, it's when you you are not expressing an opinion, but you're saying, let's go and hurt these people. Yeah, it's leading to action. Let's go and harass these people. Let's go into public schools and that's it. And, and, you know, to pour some cold water on people who are very, very afraid. And I, I have put my own volunteer efforts into fighting for freedom of speech in Canada. But the idea that, that the hate speech laws are a real limitation on the, the ability for bigots to express their hatred of uh, of Islam. No, you can do that. You I, can. You really shouldn't, but you can. Yeah. I remember when I was in high school, we did a we did the mock Nuremberg trials. I think everybody does that in history class. And I got a nice big package from Ernst Zundel trying to educate me about why I was being duped by Jews and their ilk. And it got sent to my school. The office called me down from my class. I was 17 and handed me this big package. And it was from Ernst Sundel. And I sat in my class with my history teacher and I opened it up and we read all those things. And this was maybe this was a year or two before all of his stuff had started with the court stuff. 
And I always go back to that. I'm like, was that was that traumatic? Was that a bad thing? Or was it that I was able to sort of he had because we'd had coverage of our mock trials in the Toronto Star. And I guess he'd read that. And so he sent he sent a package to each of the kids in my class that were named as lawyers in those trials. That's and, uh, terrifying uh, well, in a way. You, but... It was terrifying, but also illuminating. I mean, I don't recall being traumatized by it. And I'm not saying that bigots should be allowed to mail shit to students at school. But I'm saying that at that time, 1987, it did happen. Well, that's that's the part that kind of is disturbing is that Zendel could actually like reach out and, and, and communicate with high school students. Mm-hmm. But your teacher actually sat down and was like, well, let's actually check this against well, the Well, uh, yeah, because I mean, I, I knew who he was and I, you know, there'd been some coverage of some protests or something that he'd started up, some rallies or something at that time. Yeah. And so when I got the package, I had to go back to class and I showed my teacher and my teacher was like, okay, well, let's open this up and see what's in it. And it was basically, as far as I remember, it was pamphlets and a letter and it was a clipping of the article that talked about the trial. And it was basically him trying to very gently and in a very fatherly way, help me understand (laughs) that I was being duped by the Jews. Right. So, yeah. Which turned into a teachable moment. So you had had a good teacher. Yeah. Duly noted. Okay, I would like to duly note a tweet that was deleted by a member of parliament, by member of parliament, Carrie Diot. I'm going to read you the tweet that Carrie Diot deleted, but first, here is the context. If you're not familiar with press progress, uh, it's actually a little bit difficult to find out what they are. They call themselves hard-hitting news and analysis, and you get left-leaning news. It is actually a news service, an information service, I don't know, that is published by the Broadbent Institute. So this is a an advocacy group, a think tank, a left-leaning think tank that has one of these uh, sites that looks very much like a news site. And, you know, it's an interesting category that they're in because they do sometimes publish news, but their purpose is not merely to inform the public. The, pur- the purpose is that they are to advocate for the positions of the Broadbent Institute. So Press Progress nevertheless does break news, and they broke a story that revealed that the interim United Conservative Party leader, Nathan Cooper, is now a United Conservative Party in Alberta, and the interim leader, Nathan Cooper, was a spokesman for Canada Family Action, a radical conservative group, says Press Progress, opposed to LGBTQ rights. Now, seemingly in response to Press Progress breaking this story, Member of Parliament Kerry Diot tweets, at Progress Alberta, you should be afraid, very afraid, you fake news outfit. Wow. So here he is, not just calling them fake news, borrowing that Trumpian term, and I can accept that they are not a traditional news service. Are they fake news? Are they just politically skewed news? You have different categories here. You've got, you know, the National Post is a right-leaning newspaper. Toronto Star is a left-leaning newspaper. They're not fake necessarily, but they have a bias. Then you get to things like Press Progress. And, you know, uh, is it fake news? Maybe it's the fact that it's news is fake, except they can actually publish news that isn't fake. And apparently the story is not fake. Let's leave that aside and focus instead on the threat You should be afraid, very afraid. This is new territory, as far as I can see. A member of parliament openly threatening an information service, a website, whatever you want to call it. There's another aspect to this, which is that Kerry Diot threatened Progress Alberta. Progress Alberta is not press progress. Progress Alberta is a different 
information news service site that also represents a political group. Maybe similar, easy to mix them up, but not the same thing at all. So here we have a member of parliament threatening uh, the wrong group and, and calling them fake news and then quickly deleting it. I think people will try to get away with as much as they can get away with. Yeah. And it's clear that you can get away with a great deal more in the era of this sort of really screaming crazy extremist right rhetoric uh, than you could even five or six years ago, even seven or eight years ago. Um, So yeah, I think he's going to try to get away with whatever he can get away with and people will support him still. People will try to write it off as, oh, that wasn't a real threat. That was just, you know, that was just him. And he he deleted it. He deleted it. It showed that he had remorse, you know? Yeah. Um, I think people can get away with a lot of shit these days and it's really unfortunate. You know, last week we talked about how uh, conservatives around the Cotter case bringing their anti-Trudeau message mm-hmm. about the payout. Jihadi Justin. Yeah, uh, bringing that to Fox News, mm-hmm. uh, bringing that, uh, you know, re- really kind of like embracing alt-right news sources and trying to you know, like uh, simultaneously get those sources to carry their messaging, mm-hmm. embracing Ezra Levant and uh, simultaneously trying to discredit mainstream Canadian news with the same kind of rhetoric, fake yeah. news. I just, I yeah, I, you know, it's it's a thing I can't, you know where you're going, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's not as though you're simply looking for a place to air your point of view because you can't find a place somewhere else. It's almost as though they are looking for a place to air their point of view where it will not only not be challenged, but it will also be bolstered in a variety of ways. And it's it's almost like a fear of accountability. I mean, the whole Cutter story, it's amazing to me how people are completely unwilling it's not unable. They are unwilling to actually try and know what the story is. Yeah. You know, what is that settlement about? What is it for? What's behind it? What's the trajectory? What's the history? It's all highly Googleable, but nobody wants to go there. It's the willful ignorance. And that goes up to the highest levels. Yeah. I talked about the sh- like, w- my exchange with Senator Linda Frum, where I said, you know, she was thumping on about this. And I said, well, what if he's not guilty? And directing her to a pretty cogent article that makes it really hard to get to the place where he is guilty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, her response was, there's no way he's innocent because he was with Al-Qaeda. It doesn't yeah, matter yeah. if he killed the guy. I don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to know. There's no way he's innocent because there's no way he's innocent. Yeah. And that's just what it yeah. is. Yeah. But, but you know, I don't want to play armchair strategist. I'm sure it's really exciting for Canadian conservatives to see their uh, elected officials making politics the blood sport that American politics has become mm-hmm. and, and watching, you know, uh, Michelle Rempel on Tucker Carlson and, you know, like we're in the big leagues and it's getting exciting. Oh, it's terrifying. I just wonder if like, you know, I don't want to say, well, yeah, it's going to backfire on yeah. you. Maybe they know what they're doing. Maybe this is a path to success, but it's this desire. Yeah. Maybe that's just that play in the big leagues, be part of that sort of inner circle, that inner kind of hateful circle that's there. And then people that sort of are on the outside are thinking, do I want in or do I want out? Well, we did reach out to Kerry Diot to ask him, what did you mean when you said that they should be very, very afraid? Uh, and what do you mean when you call them fake news? And we have not heard back. Yeah. Well, the tweet was deleted. It didn't exist. So what do you want him to respond to? Duly noted. All right. Let's lighten this up a little bit. You seem like a woman who likes a good chuckle. I do indeed. You like to laugh. I love to laugh. Well, you should know about a wonderful service that our government provides called CBC Comedy. CBC Comedy... We've talked about before on this show, and it's something that I think very, very few Canadians know about. And if you look at their own stats, as journalists like to point out, nobody's really reading or sharing this stuff. It's a platform for CBC to write kind of fake news headlines a la The Onion. It's also a platform for them to funnel other comedy stuff that's great stuff like Baroness von Sketch. But the actual like 
original comedy that they tweet out in their little comedy stories seems to be very low traffic. And the people who I hear talking about it most, most of the time are outraged journalists who can't believe how unfunny and terrible it is. I'll give a couple samples here of some headlines. Excited murderer disappointed when knife sharpening truck turns out to be ice cream truck. What a way to ruin a morning. Another example here. I didn't cherry pick these. I just picked the first couple that I can. Heroic woman still finds boyfriend attractive after meeting his hot older brother. So brave. So these are, you know, kind of groaners. And I think that they were going largely unnoticed by most Canadians. But then CBC Comedy kind of stepped in it. They recently tweeted, John McCain back to his old self after surgery, unfortunately. And that triggered a conservative response of why is my taxpayer-funded CBC in such terrible taste criticizing and making fun of poor John McCain who has brain cancer? You know, there's a long tradition of unfunny in Canada, which which is which is fine. <laughs> it's I mean, part of our heritage. I grew up with the trouble with Tracy, so I I remember that, right? And obviously, what is funny is in the eye of the beholder and all of that. I read that John McCain piece, and I actually didn't find it to be a problem. Yeah, I really didn't. I mean, I thought it wasn't meant to be funny. It wasn't funny. It was meant to be very sort of pointed and critical mm-hmm. um, in a in a satirical way in which it was. I mean, this idea that we're lauding as hero. I mean, there's two parts to that. Part of it is this whole sort of heroic casting of anybody who has cancer, right? And And yeah, I know I sound like a jerk, but this whole like, battle with cancer, fighting cancer. It's a disease, you know, and and he has it and all that. But the idea that he's being lauded, that he got out of his bed to come back to vote, to essentially open debate on taking health care away from Americans when he's fully funded, right? He's fully funded until he dies. Oh, if they had actually written that after we knew everything about John McCain and after he had made a choice as a policymaker to deny thousands of other people the care that he got, it would have been a kind of even a brave piece of satire. Well, that's what I read, though. I mean, maybe the headline, the unfortunately part. I mean, the unfortunately part was directed at the fact that this guy has a poor track record. I mean, 90% of his voting is in line with what Trump wants. It's a partisan joke. It's saying that McCain's choices uh, in in, in his voting were the wrong ones. But comedy always kind of takes a side when you make fun of somebody. I might agree with you, except that they, they tweeted that story out. They wrote that story before it was known that he had brain cancer. All that was known was that he was having surgery. And as soon as the backlash came, they removed the story and said, oh, we didn't know. Mm -hmm. If we'd known that he had brain cancer, we never would have written that story. It was too late. And Kelly Leach's former campaign manager. I'm making that sound. Launched a campaign called thatisnotfunny.ca. Good for him. Free speech. To defund the CBC comedy. <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, being outraged by the CBC is also sort of a national pastime. And and I'll be I'll put my cards on the table. I do a lot of work for the CBC. I'm a producer at the CBC. Oh, I'm putting you in a very uncomfortable um, position here. Oh no. I mean I'm I'm also a freelancer. I mean I've retained that status yeah. for years and years and years. And so that gives me a certain amount of flexibility. Well it actually it actually puts you outside of their rules which state that a CBC employee couldn't be having this conversation with me even. So. Well yeah, I mean I don't have to get permissions and that yeah. sort of thing. But I I mean, you know, the thing is, 
if you're going to be outraged by something, I think that there are a lot of other things to be outraged by. Yeah. You know, the, the sort of the picking on the CBC, I think, is a, yeah, I mean, I'm not here to say that everything is defensible. There's a lot of indefensible stuff that happens. But picking on the national broadcaster, I think, for a Canadian, that's kind of like, isn't that sort of along with the double-double and Tim Bits or whatever else? I mean, that's kind of what we do, right? <laughs> and I should correct myself. It wasn't the former campaign manager. Uh, Michael Dunn was the former campaign strategist for Kelly Leach who launched this campaign. I am actually going to quibble with this campaign. The campaign says that is not funny. We need to defund this because it's not funny and it's attacking conservatives. I think that CBC comedy has resulted in a lot of funny stuff. I think it's hilarious. There's stuff that I read all the time through my Facebook feed that I I actually loll at. I don't. I find their, their <laughs> comedy really unfunny, but I find the fact that there is a political protest site called thatisnotfunny.ca, that's fucking hilarious to me. <laughs> I think it's hilarious that the person in charge of CBC comedy wrote a email to journalists making fun of CBC comedy saying, stop making fun of us. We worked really hard on this site. That's very funny to me. <laughs> well, and also the fact that a conservative can't get a joke is, I guess, part of the whole hoo-ha-ha here. It is. And that plays out in what is like the most hilarious effect of CBC Comedy, which is a parody site making fun of CBC Comedy called CBC Jokes. So CBC Jokes is this Twitter account. Is it funnier than CBC Comedy? It's funny because it's intentionally not funny. So here are some headlines from CBC this Jokes. This is too meta for this early in the it's morning. It's amazing <laughs> what happened from this, okay? Here is a typical CBC Jokes parody Headline, news, local woman wants to marry chocolate, hashtag satire. So here they are taking to a logical extreme, mm -hmm. lame jokes, and they call themselves, this is a Canadian Federal Crown Corporation satire website. It was very obvious to me that yeah. this is a parody site, but a right. lot of conservatives confuse CBC jokes <laughs> with CBC comedy. And that's where things get really funny. So here's like, somebody tweeted at them. You're completely not funny. And as taxpayers, we resent part of our hard-earned paychecks covering your salaries. Yes. And then they mercilessly troll them in return. CBC Jokes responds, hi, guys, putting all the jokes into the tickle trunk for a moment. <laughs> We'd like to share a serious <laughs> message. It's not that much taxpayer money when you divide it up by all Canadians. And then Ezra Levant gets into this and says, it's impossible to distinguish CBC comedy and the parody CBC Jokes. Except one doesn't cost taxpayers $1.5 billion a year. Ooh, oh, my God. Dun, dun, dun. I, had, I had no idea CBC Comedy was costing $1.5 billion. Oh, I know. And, I, and at some point, there's going to be some Twitter feed that's going to screenshot all of this and then post that as their, as their tweets. And then it's just going to be, yeah. Then we'll never know anything about anything again. I try to see things from, like, I feel like, okay, if I was a partisan on either side, if I felt like, a, you know, conservatives should be in power and a crown corporation was constantly satirizing and making fun of my candidates and somebody actually some lunatic actually went and added up how many conservatives have been made fun of versus how many liberals <laughs> have been made fun of i guess you've got a legitimate beef uh, and, yeah. and you know I, I don't feel necessarily that this is something that cbc should be doing but like to get angry about this i mean there's there's two things right first tell your people to stop doing things that are that we can make fun of you that's one thing I know. but the other but the other part of it is where where are you going to take your energy, right? I mean, it's one thing to go after, say, news and current affairs and say, this is the part where we really need to deal. It's CBC comedy, right? I mean, come on. It's it's like when people go after, I don't know, music sites for, you know, for glossing over some really huge issue in the music. And it's like, they're playing music. Let them play music. You know, like it's not really, it's not the place of this particular, you know, unit or whatever to do the thing that you want them to do. They're not there for critical engagement on politics. They're making fun of people, right? And that's what they're going to do. 
yeah, like for conservatives, it just seems like every single issue is as important as every other issue. Yeah. You know, and I'm talking small seat conservatives. And, you know, it, I don't know. I just get tired of it after a while. If you hate the CBC, go ahead and hate the CBC. But to kind of throw out numbers like that one and a half billion, like it comes down to, I don't know, for radio, it's like nine bucks per Canadian or something. Like, come on. Seriously. I, I think CBC Comedy has, what, like five people working there? Go after bigger fish. Nahid. That is not funny. <laughs> I'm just trying to be Canadian. Come on. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you, Nahid. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, you can email me and I will read everything you send me and respond when I can. And you can send those emails to jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Nahid, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter at Nahid Mustafa. Our website is canadalandshow.com, but really, you should just like our Facebook page if you want our news stories to show up in your feed. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This show is produced by Russell Gregg, syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.